I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me. Look, I want to, I'm launching my own new campaign, and I'm going to get into it after I do a couple of housekeeping items first. Look, if you are calling into WBAI or WPFW after last, the last episode or last show, please continue to do so. We are listener-supported radio, and we depend on and count on your contributions to keep this show on both WBAI and WPFW. So I ask that you make those contributions and you support this fine radio station or these fine radio stations. And and look, you're not going to hear anywhere else except for on these two stations or on the podcasts that are produced from the, the, this program or if you happen to be listening on Facebook or watching on Facebook. But it's, but it's these two stations that that carry this program. And, and so we really do need you to support these two stations. That's WPFW at uh, 202-588-9739. You can make that call and make your contributions. Or WBAI, which is uh, 212-209-2950. You can make those calls and support this, these radio stations and support this program on these radio stations. Look, before I get into my my new campaign or my what'll be my current campaign, I do want to mention excuse me. Uh, I do want to mention that I've talked a lot about Peter Dorico's Federal Anti-Indian Law Book, The Legal Entrapment of Indigenous Peoples, and it is an incredible book. It is a book that that I am now relying on to basically backfill of a lot of the positions that I've that I've taken over the years. And this book is now or will be soon available on on paperback. You can actually do pre-orders for this book in paperback. It's currently was only or has been only available as a as a hard hard copy, hardbound book and it will be available as a paperback. You can go to bloomsbury.com and look for Federal Anti-Indian Law by Peter Dorico and you can we can actually, you know, start your pre-order, put an order in for it when they release in, in the next couple of months. It is an incredible book and I'm going to, I'll be referencing it as I do the show today. All right. So what I'm, the, I guess my campaign is to, is to assert as vocally as I can and in as many ways as I can, that native people are not wards of the federal government. Now I mean, I know that sounds absurd, but look, it was only a few years ago. It was, like, it was 2014, a few years, almost a decade now, that Paul Gozar from from uh, Arizona made that statement publicly. He just said, and he was referring to an, an Apache case, a land case, and he said, look, Native Americans are wards of the federal government. I mean, and he just, he, he said it. And the thing is, the response from Native people was pretty strong. Well, but it wasn't strong enough. I mean, I heard some people say, well, that's kind of an antiquated, uh, you know, language for our relationship. Well, it's only antiquated if you assert that you're not. And here's the problem. There is this expression we hear all the time, and I've heard Native people say it. I've heard Native people say it on my show. But you hear the federal government, you, you hear the president of the United States, you hear Deb Haaland, you hear 
you know, senators and, and, and congressmen, you hear them say it all the time about the United States trust responsibility. The United States has a trust responsibility to, to Native Americans in this country. Well, we need to stop allowing that expression to be used. And we need to stop using it. And, and I'm going to get into, into reasons why. First off, when they use words like trust and trust responsibility, what they're asserting is that we are wards of the state, that they are our trustees. And they are not. There's no legal basis to even make that claim. I'm going to talk about where this comes from and how it develops into this language that is so commonplace. And look, if you if you've listened to any native issues, you must have heard, you will have heard somebody reference the federal government's trust responsibility to native people. And in every instance that that's being said, what they're saying is that they are our trustees. Look, we're not talking about trust as a virtue here. We're not saying that we trust them or that they are trying to maintain our trust in them. No, that's not what this is about. This is about trusteeship. But the crazy part is, as the United States claims to have this trust responsibility, they also are very clearly saying, but we don't mean a trust like, like a private trust. I mean, we're, we're, we're like a, a, a child or somebody who is deemed incompetent has somebody who is their trustee. And as their trustee, their, their first and foremost obligation is to the beneficiary of that trust. No, that's not what the United States is saying. In fact, Sam Alito flat out said, I mean, the language that he used, he said that, um, let me pull it up here. It says, Congress may style its relations with Indians a trust without assuming all of the fiduciary duties of a private trustee. I mean, so in other words, what, what and this is Sam Alito saying this in a, in a case, you know, back in, uh, I think, uh, 2011 or 20, 2014, yeah, 2011. And what he was saying is that, oh, we can call it a trust, but we don't have to have the obligations that, that a normal trustee, because since the federal government is, the, is claiming to be our trustee, they're not bound by trust law, by, by the common law that exists for what, would, what mo many people know as a legal binding trust. Meaning the trustees, first and foremost obligations are to the beneficiary. But the, the problem is the United States, when they claim to be the trustee, <clears throat> they aren't saying that their first and foremost obligation is to us. They're saying their first and foremost obligation is the national interest. And in fact, what Alito was saying in this case, and this had to do with the Higuria Apache, and, and it was over resources taken off of their, their lands. and what the uh, what the Apache were trying to do was was sue for the documentation. They're saying, "Look, we want all of you, uh, all since you're claiming to man and you're managing our resources under the so-called trust responsibility. Give us the documents. We want to see the management documents. We want to see all the information about where those resources are gone." And Alito says, "Yeah, they don't have to give that." He goes, "Under normal trust law, a trustee would have to provide that documentation, but not not here, not here. The, no, the United States don't have to give that. They don't have to." give that information to their wards. I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd. But as much as there was all this backlash when Gozar made this public statement that, that American Indians are wards of the federal government, and there were plenty of people who weighed in on it, not just the Apache, there were plenty of people who were, who were weighing in on, on that statement. But look, I still hear our people referring to the United States having a federal trust responsibility to us. And every time we say it, 
what we are saying is that they are our trustees. And look, I realize that in many native territories, not where I live here in Seneca territory, but in many native territories, the very lands that native people reside on and occupy and call their own are actually being held by the federal government in trust. So the title to that land, the federal government is, is claiming. They are claiming to hold that title for the use and benefits of, uh, of native people. And they use that distinction between the land being theirs and them holding that title as leverage. So we have to, first, first and foremost, we have to stop saying it. We have to stop referring to the federal government as having a trust responsibility because they don't. There's, there's nothing legally binding to that. So, and, and let me explain. Let me explain where that comes from. Because, and, and again, I'm going to reference, you know, some information that, that I've talked about for years, but plenty of information that is in this, this book by Peter Dorico, Federal Anti-Indian Law. He breaks down what, they, what was referred to as the Marshall Trilogy of Cases. And these are cases that, the first case is Johnson v. McIntosh. It was in, I think it was 1823. Then there's the Cher Cherokee versus Georgia in 1831. And then Worcester versus Georgia a year later in 1832. And these three cases are cases that have a, they have a, a, a bit of a through line, but they, in a way, they accomplish different things each step along the way. Johnson v. McIntosh, and again, Native people aren't even the plaintiffs or the, or the defendants in this case. It is these two guys, Johnson and McIntosh, who are suing over lands that may, and turns out may have probably didn't, intersect that they were claiming to have some rights to. They, were le they, they said they had leases to the land. One claimed to have gotten the lease from the, from the Cherokee, and the others claimed that they got, had gotten the lease from, from the state of Georgia. Or actually, I don't even know if it was in Georgia. Take it back. I, I'm not even sure which state, what state it was in. But they were saying that they got the lease from, the, from either the state or the federal government, and the other claimed that, that they had gotten it from, you know, from the, the, the tribal council. And so what Justice John Marshall, Chief Justice John Marshall in 1823, when he ruled in this case, many said that the ruling was protecting Native people from this onslaught of white people coming there trying to make land deals and swindling Native people out of their lands. That's, that was the way people tried to prop this thing up in this favorable way. But, but that's not really what happened there. What basically what, what, what Marshall said is, no, you don't even own the land. Once, once we discovered you, we took, we, he called it the, the extravagant pretension of converting discovery to conquest just by, by flipping the words. In other words, once we laid eyes on you, we deemed you as a conquered people and that your sovereignty was necessarily diminished upon discovery. So that's what, that's what Marshall wrote in, uh, in his opinion on Johnson v. McIntosh. And this is where the doctrine of Christian discovery becomes codified in U.S. law. 1823. Now, I, gotta, I, I have to back up a little bit because almost... Uh, you know, what would it be, in 1794, 30, almost 30 years earlier, the United States was pressing the Senecas and the other six nations here in the, the territory of the Haudenosaunee to ratify and agree to a treaty called the Canadago Treaty. It was a treaty that was supposedly signed, and we can argue about that legitimacy, in, in Canadago, New York. And so it's been called the Canadago Treaty. And in that treaty, three times the United States says, we acknowledge that the land is yours, and we will never claim the same. We will never 
claim the same. Nor will we disturb you in your free use and enjoyment of your land or your, your, your friends and allies that, that, that reside amongst you. And this will remain until you should ever decide to sell it to us, which we have a right to buy. But it was clear that the, the United States was acknowledging in 1794 that we owned our land and that it was not part of the United States and that it would never become a part of the United States unless we decided to relinquish it to them through a sale or, or, or trade or something like that. And, you know, and there was an attempt to move the Senecas and others off of the land in what is, was surrounded by New York State and move, uh, move us to, to Kansas and, and out west, uh, west of the Mississippi. And when the question was asked then, and this is in the 1830s now, after this Johnson v. McIntosh, after the doctrine of Christian discovery becomes codified in U.S. law, when the Seneca's asked, well, what would be the status of that land if we were to take this deal, if we were to move? And they said, oh, it would be yours. And the United States would never claim it. And it would never become part of a, of a state. It would be held by you in the same way that the land you now reside on is held by you. So it was clear that in the 1830s, during this removal period, that the United States wasn't taking the position, at least not with the Senecas, that you won't own the land, we're going to hold it for you. No, that's not what they said. And they didn't say, you don't own the land you're on now. We're only allowing you to be there. That's not what they said. They, they were fully acknowledging that 30 years ago, that under the, under the presidency of George Washington, that the United States was acknowledging our ownership not our occupancy, not our just we have not our residency, but our ownership of, of the land in 1794. And then in spite of Johnson v. McIntosh, in spite of Justice John Marshall codifying the doctrine of discovery, which says we didn't own our lands, another decade later, the United States would once again reaffirm that the Senecas, if they chose to move to another parcel, would own the land just as the land that, they're, that they were currently residing on that they own. So there's contradiction here. And, you know, in, in many of the books and, and mon, many of the, the works that have been done on the doctrine of discovery, there isn't a, an in-depth conversation about exceptions. And there should be, and, and contradictions. And there, and there should be. Even, even when my friend Peter Dorico didn't necessarily delve in, because he was trying to communicate a whole point. And so he didn't delve into the contradictions because it might've confused it. And perhaps I may, may have confused you as I was talking about this. So, so Johnson v. McIntosh is basically where the Justice John Marshall says that once you were discovered, your sovereignty was eradicated. It was wiped out. And we, and only we, had the rights to claim title. And, and basically what the doctrine of Christian discovery is that, is that the discovering nations and those who may have tried, uh, you know, traded or, or bought the, the, the rights to land, because the other thing that would happen you know, after, during the, the Jefferson administration, is that they would be purchasing the, this so-called Louisiana Purchase. And you can tell it was a purchase because it's right in the name, the Louisiana Purchase. And they were buying the Louisiana Purchase or territory from the French who had gotten, who had somehow gotten that that discovery title, as they called it, from the Spanish, regardless of the fact that Native people lived through, through all of this area. But that's what the United States had done. And so in the, in the early 1800s, they had sold this idea of buying this land from the French 
basically so they could ship all the native people out there. And that was the way Jefferson sold that whole notion of the, of the Louisiana Purchase to, to the southern states in particular. So this is what J- Johnson v. McIntosh really establishes. It wasn't about protecting native people from, you know, from being swindled out of the land. It was basically saying, no, you don't own it anyway. And we're going to allow you to stay in certain parcels because we own it. And we, we, we're, going to give, we're going to acknowledge your right to occupancy, but not the right to ownership. So that's what Johnson v. McIntosh did. Now, a, over a decade later, when the, the state of Georgia was trying to run the Cherokee out of their lands, the Supreme Court ruled that they couldn't do it. And this is where the, the big controversy when Andrew Jackson basically defied the, the U.S. Supreme Court and said, yeah, you, got, you have your ruling. Let's see you enforce it. I've got the army. So what Jackson was supporting the state's ability to, to try to run the, the Cherokee out of, of the territory. But what, again, what Johnson or Justice Marshall had, had ruled was that Native people were like domestic dependent nations, is what he called us. He basically said it was like a ward-guardian relationship. So this is where, this is the beginning, stemming from you know, the, the ruling in Johnson and McIntosh, to assert that Native people, yes, they exist. And there's a certain distinction there, and and he, he acknowledged dependent nationhood, but domestic dependent nation. So he was acknowledging distinction, and he was basically saying, Georgia, you can't do this because they are wards of the federal government. You can't push the wards of the federal government off your territory. That had to be done. You know, Washington could only do that. I mean, the, the capital, not George Washington, but the Washington could only do that. So that ruling starts to establish this notion of Native people being wards of the federal government. That's where that language comes. And this is 1833 or 1831, I mean. So it's old. So we can say it's antiquated. But then this this notion of not only this trust responsibility, because that's what this whole idea of ward and guardian or ward custodian thing is. It's about that we were that, that the United States had become our trustees because we were dependent. We were domesticated. We were dependent on them. So a year later, in this Worcester versus Georgia case, which is where Georgia was trying to run missionaries out of out of Cherokee territory, again the Supreme Court asserts that no, the state, you don't have jurisdiction over what's ha- what happens on native territory. And what he does is he takes this whole war custodian thing to the next level and says. Only Congress has that authority. And, and this is where this notion of plenary powers, the, the ultimate power of Congress over the, regulating the meets and bounds of tribal sovereignty, over, over all the affairs of Native people. So that what he ruled in, in 1832 was that Georgia, you, you and any state, can't do certain things to Native people. You can only, only the federal government can do that. So... Johnson v. McIntosh asserts and codifies the doctrine of Christian discovery into U.S. law. The Cherokee versus Georgia, in that case, again, same Chief Justice, John Marshall. This is where this notion of trust responsibility comes from and the idea that Native people are wards of the state. That's where that notion comes from. And then a year later in Worcester versus Georgia, when when the Supreme Court basically told Georgia, "You, you can't push out the missionaries. Only we can do that. Basically, this idea that that Congress, and he says we, but he's referring to, to Congress, and this is where this idea of plenary powers comes from. The problem is, with all of this stuff, it's all a lie. 
mean, there's no legal basis for the doctrine of Christian discovery. Just because Johnson writes it into law doesn't mean that it's legit. It was made up. This is where I, I've talked about before. We have to understand that for a country that, that insists on the preeminence of rule of law, when it comes to Native people, there was never the establishment of rule, the establishment of, rule of law. I mean, some people tried to argue that because the, the church issued these papal bulls establishing this doctrine of Christian discovery, which, which the current pope is saying, no, that's not really what they did. That's the way, that's the way nation states interpreted those papal bulls, but it was never, you know, he, he tries to, he tried to repudiate it without rescinding the church's responsibility, which is interesting enough all by itself. But so that's how, I mean, there were some that were claiming, yes, it was, it was the common law because it came from the, because it came from the Vatican. Well, other nations like England and like Spain and other countries may have utilized those papal bulls to make it their, to, so they could justify genocide and colonization. But the idea of using church dogma, church doctrine, I mean, look, the, the, the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People says that any doctrine that is based on, on race, nation of origin, ethnicity, any, uh, anything like that is racist. It's, it's morally condemnable. It's socially unjust. And it's legally invalid. That, that's almost specifically talking about the doctrine of Christian discovery. But that's, so that's where Chief Justice John Marshall starts this. But it's not based on law. In fact, it's based on the antithesis of, of, of anything that would be legal. This idea of, all, of automatically suggesting that we're wards of the state, this, again, part of what, what came out of Johnson v. McIntosh was this notion that they could, they could extravagantly pretend that, that discovery was the same as conquest. Let me be clear here. For, all of, for anybody who believes that Native people were conquered by the United States, it didn't happen. I mean, look, there was there were fights. There were there was you know the, the wars, as the United States calls it, the Indian Wars. But the vast majority of Native people were never at war with the United States. In fact, some of them stood with the colonists in in, in the Revolutionary War. Some of them stood with the United States or with the North in, in the Civil War. I mean, so this notion that that Native people were at war with the United States and were, and were defeated, soundly defeated, and then conquered. I mean, you may be able to document maybe 50 armed conflicts between the United States and various Native peoples. I mean, only 50. And you're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of, of five to six, perhaps even 700 independent, free and independent peoples that lived on Turtle Island. Well, whatever those conflicts were, those, those handful of conflicts, 50 or so conflicts were, that doesn't constitute conquest of everybody. And you know what? The United States also didn't win all 50 of those either. I mean, that's, that's a point worth noting. I mean, there's, there are several instances where the United States may not have surrendered to their native counterparts, but they ceased aggression. They gave up. They didn't surrender, but they gave up. There's a difference. So this notion that that because a Supreme Court justice writes in his opinion, and, and, now, and I got to be clear here, John Marshall didn't rule that Native people were domestic dependent nations. He just made that, that was a part of his legal dicta. That was his analogy. He didn't rule that, that, uh, that Congress had plenary powers. 
that was he opined about it. That was his opinion. That wasn't his ruling. Now, since then, we have case after case after case, including the the Indian Child Welfare Act that was challenged by the Brackeens you know, a year or so ago, where they're challenged to this notion of the Indian Child Welfare Act, a piece of legislation that still never gave us authority over our own children. They he was challenging it, saying that it was racist and that it was discriminatory and that kind of stuff. And they and and the Supreme Court said, but Congress has that power. So in other words, Congress can pass racist and discriminatory laws regarding Native people because they have plenary powers. That and plenary means ultimate, folks. So this notion that Congress has plenary powers is not based on the Constitution. I mean, some had suggested, well, yeah, it's kind of you could extrapolate that out of the, the Commerce Clause. No. You can't. The Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution basically says Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce in and among several states with foreign nations and with Indian tribes. Not of Indian tribes, but with Indian tribes. So the notion that other courts, other justices on on the uh, Supreme Court have tried to say that that suggested that it was the intent of the founding fathers that Congress should have have plenary powers over. And that's what they said. They, they use that one part of the Constitution, falsely, I might add, to assert that Congress, that it was always the intent via the Constitution that Congress shall have ultimate authority to regulate the meets and bounds of tribal sovereignty. You know who the only one, the only current Supreme Court justice who says, I don't think that's true? Clarence Thomas. <laughs> I, look, I don't know who the fans of Clarence Thomas are. are I'm not one of them. But he's the only one and he's done it multiple times. He's done it on a couple of cases where he's challenged this notion that the founding fathers or the Constitution in general ever had intended for Congress to have this ultimate power over Native people. He, he says it's not in there. You, you can read it all you want, but that's not what it says. And the, and the, rest, of the, the rest of the judges all, all remain quiet. Even in cases where Clarence Thomas you know, basically sided with with you know, say part of the other part of the court ruling against the more conservative justices, he had to write his own opinion because he di- he didn't want to you know just join in with the with the liberals. <laughs> U.S. v. Lara, if you want to ever take a look at that case, look at the the Clarence Thomas opinion, and it's not that long, so you, you can take a look at it. And it's it's called U.S. v. Lara, L A R A. That's Billy Joel Lara. Uh, he was a, a native guy who used to beat his domestic partner and and basically got charged both at the, the the tribal police level and then at the or, or at the tribal level in tribal courts and then he was charged at the by the federal government because one of the officers that he had an, a physical confrontation with was considered a BIA police officer so he got charged by both and he tried to make the argument that it, that double jeopardy should protect him and what the supreme court said is no you the double jeopardy laws don't protect you here because tribal sovereignty is what is is what the the tribal police and their courts are based on, not the Constitution of the United States. So, uh, but again, interesting stuff. A bit of an aside, but you know, it, it's it's complicated because most people don't know this. And like I said, I hear Native people, and I saw, heard Native people sing the praises of uh, of of the defeating the Iqua challenge, the Indian Child Welfare Challenge, even though the only way they defeated this challenge at least on record, was to claim that Congress has ultimate authority. So our own people are praising another Supreme Court ruling that basically says 
Congress has ultimate authority to do whatever they want with us. You know, so when we when we think about things like Killers of the Flower Moon and the fact that those people were deemed incompetent and couldn't manage their own money from oil resources, wealthiest people on the planet, and they were denied access to their own money because Congress basically said they're incompetent. And we're going to assert that incompetency and, and designate that they have to have white men be their, their, their guardians and manage their money for them. They, they will approve whether they can make certain expenditures or not. And all the while, they were getting screwed out of their money. Not only were they getting screwed by the oil companies, but they're getting screwed by everybody in town, every, uh, everybody who flocked there to grab a piece of the Osage money. And, and I've said it before in the show, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, IGRA, is more of the same. And the Supreme Court rules in, in 1987 that, look, there's no underlying federal statute. There's no statutory framework for the federal government or states to regulate native gaming, what happens on native territories. There, there is none. And, and they, the Supreme Court made that ruling in a case in California regarding a high-stakes bingo operation run by the, the Cabazon. So what does Congress do? They said, all right, there's no statutory framework. We're Congress. We have the ultimate authority. We can do whatever we want to native people. So we're going to create one. So they created IGRA. And what's the first thing they did? It says, you all have to ha- go to get in bed with the state, with the state that surrounds you. We're going to let the state be your guardian because you're incompetent. We're not going to allow you to run your own gaming. We're not going to allow you full control over your gaming. No, you've got to, you've got to sign a gaming compact with the state. California, New York, Oklahoma. Yeah, you got you to gotta enter into a gaming compact with the state because they are going to be your guardians because you are not only incompetent, you're untrustworthy. And we're going to do this under the guise that we're here to protect you. Because why? <laughs> because you're wards of the state. You're wards of the federal government. See, and we don't stand up to it. So what I plan to do this year is I'm going to be constantly beating this drum. No pun intended. Well, maybe a little pun intended. I'm going to try, be constantly beating on this. And I want to challenge every Native official, lawyer, or anybody else defending Native people. I'm going to challenge any every Native person to stop using that language. Otherwise, they should adopt Paul Gozar's commentary that we are just wards of the state. Because you cannot say the federal government has a trust responsibility without essentially not just implying, but explicitly asserting that the United States, that they are our trustees and they are not. There's no legal basis for it. And it, there's no legal basis for it anywhere. And, and again, to make matters worse, you've got the Supreme Court says, yeah, we're going to style it as a trust, but we're not going to bind it to trust law. We're not going to, we're, we're not going to say, okay, Congress, you are the trustees of Native people. And you have to give priority to the the benefits of the uh, of the beneficiaries of, of the native people. No, we're not gonna we're not gonna bind you like that. You're you are the trustee, but you're not bound by trust law. You do not have to to make sure that the primary beneficiaries of this trust relationship are native people, especially when there's other interests. And 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 let's be clear here: when Alito made those comments. Back in, in, in 2014 or 2011, whatever it was, it was about a corporation that was taking resources off of Native territory. That's what it was over. And it was, and, and, and I think one of the corporations was a, was a foreign corporation. So 
he was putting a higher value and 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 basically siding uh, and and as was the federal government siding with foreign interests and national interests over the interests of the of the so-called beneficiaries of this trust relationship so even as we call it a trust relationship the supreme court has made it clear and 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 again let me say when you look at some of these supreme court cases the actual ruling in the case isn't the legacy of those cases. Johnson v. McIntosh, the legacy was the doctrine of truth and discovery became part of U.S. law. Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited it in 2004. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the liberal darling. The legacy of Johnson v. McIntosh was codifying the doctrine of truth and discovery into U.S. law. The legacy of Cherokee versus Georgia was this notion that we were just wards of the state. And the legacy, uh, and the legacy of Worcester versus Georgia was that Congress has plenary powers over all the affairs of Native people, has ultimate power over the affairs of Native people. That wasn't the ruling. The ruling was, no, you can't force out the missionaries. The ruling in, in Cherokee versus Georgia, no, you can't, Georgia, you can't force Native people off the land. That's the ruling. But the legacy is not the ruling. The legacy is the legal dicta that gets wrapped up and is cited time and time again, even by our own people. That's the problem. So, First, we have to stop saying it. And you know what? The next time Joe Biden steps up to a, up to a microphone and says, oh, I respect native sovereignty, I expect tribal sovereignty, and I recognize the United States trust responsibility to native people. You say, no, you don't have a trust responsibility. You have obligations because of the atrocities you committed against our people. But no, you are not our trustee, and we don't trust you. Let's use the word where, where it comes from, right? No, we don't trust you. And you are not our trustee. So we have to call them out every time they use that expression. And we have to check our own people, our lawyers, our consultants, our elected leaders, our appointed leaders, traditional leaders. Because we have a tendency to play the short game as well. If we, if we, the way to push back on the states is to suggest they don't have the authority Congress does. Yeah, but you're still saying that you don't have the authority. The problem with the Indian Child Welfare Act is they were taking our children. They were ripping our, our families apart, sending our children to residential schools, putting them in foster care. They're taking, literally taking our children. So what does Congress do? They tell the states that you have to put, you have to place a priority when you remove child, when you still can remove children from native home, households, but when you do so, you have to place them, you put a priority on placing them with native families. You never challenged that whether they had the right to take our children in the first place? Because they even said, look, if you take a native children, a child from, from Onondaga, you can place them with a Lakota family. I mean, they didn't even care. <laughs> they didn't even care about continuity of culture or anything else. They just said, in the interest of maintaining, you know, some cultural continuity, a native child must be prioritized with the, in their placement with another native family, even if it's not the same nation, even if it's not family members. So they never said to, to our nations, you have the primary, you have ultimate authority on where the, where, where their child is removed and where they are placed. They didn't say that to, to quote unquote tribal courts or, or, or elected leaders, you know, traditional leaders. They didn't say it to us. No, they just basically told the States, your current child protective services, we're going to give you some guardrails. So when you do take children away, we're going to tell you you have to give a, a, a preference 
to a place in the Native Tongue. I mean, we still we still weren't even in the conversation. I mean, they mention us in the, in the document in the, in the act, and when these Brackeens, this family in Texas, was trying to challenge the law, what did they say? They said it was racist because I'm being uh, being discriminated against because I'm white and I want to take a Native child and I want to I want to adopt a Native child. I'm being discriminated against against. The courts wouldn't even recognize that. They were trying, what the Brackeens were trying to do with their oil money because they were being supported by oil industry. And, and that, that, that doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why the oil industry was supporting the Brackeens because what they were trying to do was reduce us to a race of Americans. They were trying to wipe out our distinct nature. They were trying to wipe out this notion of sovereignty. Say, no, they're just, they're just Americans of another race. So why can't, I adopt the native child. We're all Americans. And to, and to, dis, and to dis, discriminate against me because I'm white and I'm wealthy and I can provide that native child with more resources than some, some poor trailer park native territory can, the courts wouldn't, wouldn't even address it. They wouldn't address our distinction. They wouldn't address our sovereignty. They wouldn't. No, they just said, it doesn't matter. Congress has plenary powers. They passed that law. So it stands. So your challenge to ICWA fails because Congress has ultimate authority. Right or wrong, that's what the Supreme Court saying. Right or wrong, if they tell states you have to place Native children with Native families, they have the ultimate authority. And and not because it's bound by law, because the Supreme Court established this notion of plenary the plenary powers of Congress, and they did it over hundred. They did it almost two hundred years ago. Almost two hundred years ago, this is where we're at. This is where we're at. The, uh, you know, so when somebody says something is a- an antiquated, yeah, there's some antiquated rulings here. But as long as we're still using that language, it doesn't age. We're still using this expression about the federal trust responsibility. There is none. There is no federal trust responsibility. The United States is not, they are not the trustees of Native people, in spite of what Paul Gozart said. And, and if you got pissed off because Paul Gozar said that publicly, then what are you going to do about it? How about, how about making it clear that the United States are, is not in a position to claim trusteeship over Native territories? And while we're at it, maybe we better work a little bit on land title here. Because the notion that the federal government is holding our land for us. Now, I will say, that's not the case here. I, I mentioned Canadagra Treaty. But here where I live, on the Seneca Nation territory of Cataraugus, and the Seneca Nation in general, the land is owned in absolute title by the Seneca Nation, by the Seneca people. And they call it fee title, which means absolute title. But what the United States even there tried to do is say, well, it's restricted fee. But what's the restriction? According to the United States, the restriction is only they can buy the land, can acquire the land from us. And when they've done it without acquiring it, like when they condemned and, and took a bunch of land in, in the, in the sixties, the, between 59 and 60s, when they took land to build dams, the Kinzua dam to protect Pittsburgh, they lost in court because it was deemed illegal for, for them to try to pull eminent domain because you don't have the underlying title to our lands. We do. This is going to become a bigger issue as time goes on. Uh, we, we had the McGirt ruling. We don't know what that's going to mean in terms of actual land title. But if we don't stop using this notion that Congress has 
ultimate authority over us. And if we don't stop using this notion and this language that suggests that we are wards of the state, because that's what we're saying. Let me say it again. If you cite the federal trust responsibility, what you're saying is that they are our trustees. Well, that that's what it means. That's just what it means. So stop saying it. Stop using it as your defense. How about using sovereignty? How about attacking the doctrine of Christian discovery? The Yakima Nation did it. They put a challenge when the, when the state of Washington was trying to, 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 to horn in on, on some of the commerce that was happening. They said, look, if you're, uh, if you're driving a fuel truck on state highways, you're subject to our laws. They said, no, we got a treaty that says we, we can travel. We can travel across our ancestral lands. And they wrote, the, the and this was a, a private company called Cougar Den, and the Yakima Nation submitted an, an amicus brief where they had two parts of their argument. One was condemning the doctrine of discovery and the whole notion of attacking Native sovereignty. And then the other part of their argument was, was the language in the treaties. And I want to be clear, even with this, we are not granted rights in treaties. Our existence is not defined by treaties. Now. Some of those treaties may have uh, specifically cited protections that were you know, prior to that treaty. Like, I mean, look, when the United States says in Canandaigua that they acknowledge that our land is ours, they didn't give us our land. What they were acknowledging was what always was. The land is yours. We will never claim the same. That's, that's what George Washington signed on to in the Canandaigua Treaty. But he wasn't giving us the land. He was acknowledging it. And that's what they said. They actually said they acknowledge it. So when people say, well, where's, your, where, where's the treaty rights that says you can sell cigarettes? No, no, we didn't negotiate that in a treaty. Where, where's anything that says we can't? Because if we didn't, what, I'll tell you what most of these treaties were. Most of these treaties were was some sort of concession, something that we gave to the United States or a state. If you can't cite where we gave up a right, then, then that right is sustained. I mean, that's essentially... What's the Supreme Court said in Cabazon? If there's no underlying statute, and if the, if the Native people never said that, that the state of California or the federal government can, can regulate our gaming, if there's no statutory framework, then it doesn't exist. Well, that goes with everything. That goes with cannabis. That goes with gas and cigarettes and all this stuff. If we never gave that right up, then, then we sustain it. Even if that right was not something tangible at the time of those treaties to say that we got to go back to 1794 to determine where our rights, what, what the meets and bounds of our sovereignty is. No, it's absurd. And to say today, no, it's not treaties that determine that because here's the thing again, Congress is being recognized by the Supreme court falsely to have ultimate power. And that ultimate power includes abrogating treaties. That's what the Supreme Court has said. No, we're, you have ultimate power. You get to say, not, they don't even say you get to interpret the treaties rather than the courts doing it. It's a legal document. You would think the courts would be able to do this, right? No, they're saying, no, you get to, you can just break them. And that's what they've done. Every single one of them. The crazy part about Canadagua, let me, let me just make, make, mention this as an aside. Every year, the United States has somebody whose job it is, requisition $3,500 to buy cloth to be sent to the Haudenosaunee as a payment. $3,500. I think maybe it might be $4,500, but it's, it's some small amount of money. But every year, the United States makes a payment in cloth 
to the people of the Six Nations, the Haudenosaunee. In payment, why why do they do it? Because it's in the Canada-Dago Treaty. That's what it said. It was supposed to be, you know, animals and farm equipment and everything else, including cloth. And now, <laughs> because of inflation and everything else, it's it's not enough money to, you know, to even buy any equipment or or any farm stuff. So they just buy $4,500 worth of cloth, and then they send it up to be distributed. So the United States, in its, in its most crude and unethical un, 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 way possible, is still maintaining that aspect of the Canandaigua Treaty. They're still paying. They're still paying under those terms. The question is, will they acknowledge that the land is ours and the United States cannot claim the same? We're not pushing that issue. And, you know, and look, we didn't write that language. White men did. And, and, I, and I can't express this more soundly than that. When we cite a treaty, we're not saying that, that's, that, that those treaties define us. What they do is they define you. You're the party who wrote the treaty. You're the, the party that sued us for those treaties or per, pursued us for those treaties. So you made the acknowledgement that our land is ours and that we would never be disturbed in them. But are you living up to it? Oh, sure, you're, bang, you're, you're buying $4,500 worth of cloth and sending it. But are you, are you telling the state of New York? No, you, you can't co-manage and co-regulate native gaming. Are they, are they telling the state of New York? No, when you somehow terminated the Montucket, that was illegal. No, you got the governor of the state of New York, a Democrat, saying, well, we're standing by the ruling, which was totally based on racism. I mean, in the, at the turn of the 20th century, when, when a state court said the Montauket ceased to exist, they didn't have the authority to do it. Federal government looked the other way. And, and the reason they did it was they said, well, they'd intermarried with blacks. The Montauket were mostly black, so we don't need to acknowledge them. That, I mean, they, they pulled the, even the, the race card out. So as the Montauket still do exist today, Kathy Hochul, white girl she is, says, no, we're, we're sticking with that ruling from uh, that racist ruling. We're not going to allow the Montauket to be reinstated or to be recognized at the state level. And, and, and apparently you know, their termination at the hands of the state, why that's even, even a thing with the federal government is beyond me. But see, this is, this is the, racist, the racism that exists in federal policy. So when Peter DeRico says anti-Indian law, that's what it all is because it's not based on constitutional authority. It's not based on ethics and morality. It is based on authoritarian rule, plenary powers doctrine, federal trust responsibility, doctrine of discovery. Now, all of it is based on the authoritarian rule. So you're going to hear me talk about this throughout the year. I'm going to be pressing over it and hopefully it turns into, you know, maybe it becomes controversial. Maybe, uh, you know, this turns into some events. Maybe I'll be able to, to speak on this publicly so people understand what the United States has done. You know, when I hear people say to the United States, oh, what the United States is doing with, with Israel and, and supporting their, the destruction of Gaza, that's not what the United States is all about. Yes, it is. Well, anytime I hear people, well, kids in cages at the border, that's what that's not the United States. Yes, it is. Don't sit there and tell me what the United States isn't if you're going to ignore what the United States is and has been and continues to be. Hey, I've only got I got only got a real short time. I wanted to mention and I'll bring it up more uh, next week or on the next program. 
Pennsylvania, I think two school districts, one in particular, which is the Southern York County School District, they got rid of their native mascot, their, their racist native mascot and their imagery, and then voted to bring it back. And then they use this group of sellouts and frauds called the, the Native American Guardians Association. Oh, the Native people are the ones who told us it was okay. No, they didn't. No, we didn't. You found a couple of sellouts who stand in direct opposition to the will of Native people, and you use them so you can keep your Native mascots. Pennsylvania, you should be ashamed of yourself. And yes, I, that's another target for me this year. I'm coming after Pennsylvania on this mascot issue, and I'm coming out, out at Pennsylvania in a big way. So that will be one of my fights this year. That and the federal trust responsibility. Look, I want to thank you for, uh, for tuning in this week. It, it's, I know I get on my soapbox and rant, but nobody's saying this stuff. Not, no other native voices are saying this stuff. There's, there's hardly anybody in the legal community. I, I, you know, I thank Peter DeRico for doing what he's done here with this book. Again, go to bloomberry.com uh, or yeah, it's, yeah, bloomsbury.com and look for federal anti-Indian law. It is published by Prager, but now Bloomsbury is, is, has released, is releasing it in paperback. It is a must read. Every native person, every activist should read it, and certainly every lawyer who claims to be representing native interests should read it. I think it's a, it's it's an incredible book, and you know basically Peter has given me all of the the backfill information that I need to continue the arguments that I've been making for for thirty years. So, again, if you're listening at WBAI, please support WBAI for for carrying this program. If you're listening in New York, if you're listening in Washington D.C., please support WPFW for carrying this program. And, and if, if you're listening online, whether it's a, as a podcast or on Facebook live stream, you too, I don't care where you're listening. Support, you know, please support these radio stations. They make this program possible and they give me the opportunity to speak to you and to educate the broad public on what the truth is about the federal government's genocide against native people. I want to thank you. I'm John Kane. This is resistance radio. Yahweh.